The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Well, <laughs> Mr. Crabb, uh, I'm more interested in the primitive lifestyle of the Plains Indian than I am in uh, <laughs> tall tales about Custer. Tall tales? Are you calling me a liar? Huh? No, it's just that uh, uh, I'm interested in uh, the way of life of the Indian rather than, uh, shall we say, adventure. <laughs> you think the Battle of Little Bighorn was a was an adventure? Little Bighorn was not representative of. Uh, encounters between whites and Indians, Mr. Crabb. Uh, you see, the uh, near genocide of the Indian. The, the, the near what? Near genocide. Uh, it means extermination. The killing off of an entire people. That's practically what we did to the Indian. But of course, I wouldn't expect an old Indian fighter, like you, who agree with me. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, December 9th, 2010. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be and welcome to the show today, where, as always, 519-661-3600 is a number you can call to reach us. And boy, do we have a busy show for you today. Five of us in the studio today, including Robert and myself. We are joined by none other than Mark Vandermoss, who is the founder of the Caledonia Victims Project. Is that correct? That's correct. Good morning, Mark. And we have also with us Gary McHale, Canadian Advocates for Charter Equality... Thanks for having me. And what's what's that whole title? The Can- just just Canadian Advocates for Charter Equality. That's yes, it. Yes, eh? it is. That's and right. And you form that also out of a consequence of the situation uh, with Aboriginals. Caledonia. Yes. And also with us is Wayne Forbes, businessman from Grand Bend, who is a businessman there and has had a few differences with the Aboriginals in his area as well. Welcome to the show, Wayne. Good morning. And uh, I guess we'll start off with our main two guests today. I suppose most people know about Caledonia and what's going on in Caledonia, but perhaps a lot of people don't. And uh, which one of you would like to, uh, because apparently the media doesn't want to cover this very much, and you guys seem to have a lot of trouble getting coverage in the media in terms of any in-depth understanding of this. And I notice that you certainly haven't been on any too many of the local stations around here. I think we should let Gary go first, because he's really the one who started it all, and I really came after him uh, when I I realized the dangers of what we were actually facing in Mm -hmm. Caledonia. So let let him go first. Well, in June of uh, 2006, when I started hearing some of the... uh, things that were happening in Caledonia. I heard a story that two OPP officers were kidnapped. Uh, I started hearing other stories about the violence going on in Caledonia. And none of the media in Toronto was covering it. None of the national media would uh, print any of the uh, photos of the uh, the hydro station being destroyed or the 
bridge being burnt down, and there's no report about the uh, police officers being kidnapped. So on June 17th uh, of 2006, I created a website for one reason only, and that was to provide information to the public that the media were refusing to, uh, to print. And uh, since then, I've covered uh, much of the uh, violence that has taken place in Caledonia. And the Toronto media absolutely refuses to report much of what took place. Uh, they have their own bias. Did you, did you live in Caledonia yourself at no, the at time? No, at the time, I actually lived uh, just north of Toronto, Richmond Hill. Caledonia was uh, about an hour and a half away. And so I would drive over a couple times every single week and uh, get videos or photos or talk to the residents. Now, 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 what would motivate a person to do that? Why, why would you just, you know, if you're not a local resident, you're not, you're not directly affected, were you? No, I wasn't affected at all. Matter of fact, I had never been to Caledonia in my entire life. I had to look on a map to find where it was. <laughs> I had no clue uh, even where it was in Ontario. Uh, I think the uh, final decision occurred on, on June 9th of 2006. And that day, uh, three events happened within like an hour and a half. There was a, a senior couple that got swarmed, and the elderly man had to be uh, taken to the hospital. CH camera crew was videotaping that happening, and when the uh, Native protesters saw that they were being videotaped, they rushed across the road and attacked the camera crew, stole their equipment, stole the video, so there's no evidence. And then about an hour later, the uh, the natives then uh, attacked uh, an unmarked OPP van that had uh, police officers and also a U.S. border guard and U.S. ATF agent inside. And when they attacked uh, those officers, uh, they stole the van, they, they spun it around on the road, and they almost ran over a police officer. And all those events, each one of those three, the swarm of the seniors, the attack on the camera crew, and the uh, assault on officers, they were all watched by OPP officers that were 30 to 40 feet away. At the time in Caledonia, there was hundreds, literally hundreds of officers. They had checkpoints throughout the entire city. So there was no, the OPP, they watched each one of those events and never once came to help any of those people, even their own officers. So these criminals have not been brought to justice? Uh, they were arrested weeks later which happens all the time in Caledonia. As soon as the media does videotape and put something up on TV, the OPP will finally make arrest. But there's been no arrest for the burning down of the bridge, no arrest for the kidnapping of two OPP officers, no arrest for the destruction of the power station. Uh, they blocked the uh, main highway for six weeks, forced people to have uh, passports to go through. There's not been a single arrest for six weeks of blocking the highway. But they those blocked... people who have been arrested, though, were they brought to trial? Have they been found guilty? Have they been put in jail? Uh, most of the, at first, most of the natives, because uh, there has been a charge for attempted murder. That's uh, one charge that did go to court. Well, that's just a charge, though. Have they been... They were prosecuted. The natives uh, go to court, and they try to say, we're not subject to Canadian law. Mm -hmm. They do their big spiel in front of the courthouse. But almost all of them pled guilty. They were punished. Uh, several of them did go to jail. Uh, the U.S. Border Guard, when he was attacked, the natives held a knife to his throat. The OPP didn't come to his help. They were only 40 feet away. Lovely. Uh, they refused to share the evidence with the United States government. So uh, myself, my wife, and a few other people, we traveled down to New York State and provided them the evidence, and they got the conviction in New York State. Now, what it seemed to me that you don't have to live in Caledonia or anywhere near it to be involved in this case. I think that any Canadian, any Canadian whatsoever, and I don't care where they're from, should be interested in this particular issue and in Oka, Ipperwash, Caledonia, it doesn't matter. This is an abrogation of justice. 
and of the police and um, everybody should be interested and I'm, I'm very grateful that you and um, uh, others like you are, are coming to the um, the defense of all Canadian law not just in Caledonia but the Canadian law well what was interesting is that was the main argument the OPP kept saying at first is we were the outsiders I was coming from an hour and a half away uh, they didn't never ever called any of the natives outsider even though many of them came from uh, British Columbia they came from New York State they came from Quebec they came from northern Ontario it was okay for them to gather in Caledonia to uh, to block the railroad lines or to commit violence but if a Canadian citizen, you know, drove even a half hour away yes. to come into Caledonia, <laughs> suddenly you were inciting violence. Suddenly uh, you were the ones that was uh, racist. But isn't that what this whole thing is about, is the double standard? Apparently the Aboriginals or the natives uh, can, can do whatever they want. They get the treatment by the press, by the government, by the police. When Canadians, non-native Canadians, do likewise, or not even likewise, do it peacefully, protest or gather or... Or, or just talk about it, they're shunned, they're uh, exiled. They're <laughs> well, it's, it's really interesting you, you say that. Uh, I, I'm going to go back a little bit further than Gary. Uh, I grew up uh, as the son of some parents who lived in Nazi-occupied Holland. Mm -hmm. uh, they watched Jews being taken away uh, to be murdered. My father escaped from a Nazi work camp. So, so I grew up with a sense of history, and I learned two things. Number one, the Holocaust teaches us the lesson of personal accountability. Um, we no longer accept the just following orders of defense, uh, especially when there are illegal orders. The second thing that, uh, that we learn is that racialized policing is inherently evil and no good can come from it. Uh, I remember reading Martin uh, Niemoller's uh, famous poem about no one left to speak for me, and that resonated with me for most of my life. Um, and uh, I served in the Canadian Forces. I did a peacekeeping mission in the Middle East, and one of our uh, partners, Merlin Kinraid, uh, served in 1956 in Suez under the UN flag. It was okay for us to go 8,000 miles to the Middle East to try and, and preserve the rule of law there, what, what, what there was. Um, but for some reason, uh, somebody who lives equidistant between Ipperwash, which has been ripped apart by land claim lawlessness, and Caledonia, uh, on the other side to the east, um, were outsider interlopers inciting uh, violence and, and hate. And, uh, you know, Dr. King talked about that. He, there's a magnificent letter he wrote from the Birmingham jail dated April 16th, 1963. And he talks about people, people who had criticized him as an outsider for going from, from, uh, from Atlanta to Birmingham. And he said, I cannot sit idly by in Birmingham or in Atlanta and not be concerned with what is happening in uh, Birmingham. Uh, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice anywhere. I mean, we're talking probably, what, 50, over 50 years ago that that was written. And have we learned nothing since then? Now, the injustice is not simply against the non-native population near Caledonia. Isn't it also the peaceful natives who live on the reserve themselves being well, well, basically I, held hostage by these thugs? Well, I'm really glad you raised that because no one, um, has reported the fact. We are the only group, the only people who have talked about how Native people themselves have been victimized. And uh, first of all, in Ipperwash, the same thing happened. The original occupiers of, of the Ipperwash base were actually driven off the base. They were too afraid to go. Their houses were burned down. In Caledonia, the same things happened. The original occupiers grew so dangerous because there was no law on this site. It was They call it a home-free zone. The original occupiers were afraid to go. We've had two Native women raped on that site. We've had uh, a maniac with an AK-47 uh, went onto the Douglas Creek Estates 
and uh, were threatening uh, some people there. A resident off, went to an OPP officer who was in the car outside, asked them, told them about it, and they are not allowed. They've been ordered not to police that property. That is an unpoliced property in Canada. And the, instead of going in and, and dealing with this maniac with the, with the AK-47, the OPP called in for Six Nations police who are miles away. In the meantime... The gunman leaves the Douglas Creek Estates, goes just down the roadways to an illegal smoke shack that the government also refuses to stop, and empties his magazine into the smoke shack and blows a hole through a native man's arm. Now, my sources for this are native newspapers from Six Nations. Because I've okay. never heard of it. Of course you haven't. And we've given speeches. And this is an hour's drive from here. Yes. And uh, we have given speeches on October 8th, 2007, just before the provincial election. We had a Remember Us March, a rally, and we gave speeches there. And I, my whole speech was about how Native people were being victimized by racial policing. Gary had talked at length about how the media, especially the CBC, uh, had ignored residential schools. And not one media outlet has ever printed our speeches or quoted us, uh, at least outside of Caledonia, for sure. Now I'll give you one more example. I have radio <clears throat> transmissions of a, a Six Nations police officer at home one night. He's uh, sitting with dinner with his wife and uh, three of his children. And all of a sudden there's bullets coming through his house. He calls for backup. So it ends up there's five rounds go through his house and not one media reported the story. Now you can imagine if there was a cop living in downtown Toronto and there's a drive-by shooting and bullets go through that cop's house, that would be national news. But because it's violence on a reserve, nobody covers it. It's like, this is what happens. So where's the London Free Press, the Hamilton Spectator, the National Post? I know where the Toronto Star is, but where's the rest of them? Well, they get bored very easily. What happens, they, they think if they cover one or two stories, that's it. They did their job. They move on. That media today is, by and large, a profit-making business. It's not really there to report the news or, or to uphold democracy or freedom of the, of the press or freedom of speech. They're simply there to make a profit. And so they cover a story once or twice. They then move on to the next uh, story that's going to make them some money. And the reality is... You would think a story like this would, oh, make, would this, make some interest in money. Well, you know? Christy Blatchard was asked the other night. Uh, she finally did her presentation at University of Waterloo, which we were present. Oh, well, she and, got and to do it now, She eh? did, and, they, and the university did right by her, I have to say. But she was asked that question as well because, frankly... Um, you know, for four years, we, we worked at this for four years, um, uh, gave up our careers, our incomes. We're deeply in debt to do this. We've documented it as best we could. And probably 95% of what we do are not the public protests. It's working behind the scenes, trying to get influencers like politicians and journalists to finally tell the story. For four years, there was no, and I mean no investigative journalist, except for one exception Gary will tell you about that will shock you. There was no investigative journalism in Caledonia uh, until Christy Blatchford arrived on the scene, with one exception, about the radio tapes. And who was that? Yeah, we had, uh, back in uh, 2008, uh, I met with uh, CBC. We had uh, roughly four months of 24-7 uh, radio transmission of the native protesters. Uh, the transmissions also included all the OPP transmissions. Someone was taping it every single minute of every single day. And so CBC liked the idea that, that we had this story where we could demonstrate that the native protesters were authorizing the killing of cops and uh, residents in, uh, in Caledonia. But their lawyers required us to, to provide three clear examples through the radio transmissions of the authorization of shooting somebody. 
They cleared the story. The lawyers cleared it like three or four times. They sent their camera crew out to videotape me. They went and videotaped the mayor trainer of Haldeman County. And it was all ready to go to primetime uh, TV. They had set aside uh, 20 minutes for, uh, on CBC. And a half hour before I uh, went on air, it got pulled. So here we have a clear story of natives authorizing the killing of cops and residents. You would think that would be a big news story in Did Canada. Did they offer an explanation as to why? Oh, sorry. Uh, they tried to say, well, because the radio transmissions were, were taped, um, that's a violation of the law, and that could be a $10,000 fine. But surely this is a, what they call a one-party state or country where the recordings of conversations can only be, well, are quite legal for one person in a conversation to record, isn't it? Yeah, but we weren't part of the conversation. They were native radio. The, the parent, the, if it's radio, the, though, it's over the airwaves, isn't that fair sure. game? No, not not technically, but there is a clause within the Radio uh, Radio Act that if uh, the recordings are of public safety issues, you are allowed to rebroadcast them. Uh. And I think uh, exposing the story of, of natives authorizing the killing of cops and uh, residents would uh, would be important. We're already at the quarter hour, believe it or not. And if you're just joining us, we're in studio with Mark Vandermoss and Gary McHale, who are best known for their work around the whole Caledonia situation. And coming up after the break that we're going to take right now briefly, we'll be talking to Wayne Forbes, who uh, will enlighten us on his little situation going on in Grand Bend. Certainly not as serious as what's going on here. But what an insightful revelation as a consequence of his own investigation. We'll be back right after this break. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be in Winnipeg again. Jeez, it's nice to see a bunch of Indian folks in here. I won't go snow blind tonight looking at y'all. <laughs> what else we got? One little, two little, three little whiteies, four little, five little. <laughs> uh, good. A good sense of humor, you know. I did this act in L.A. and they didn't quite get it, you know. <laughs> They're not used to seeing Indians in Hollywood. Everybody put the tables in a circle, you know. <laughs> and they weren't quite sure, you know. And I had a heckler, and I know I should never judge a man by the color of his neck or anything like that. But it... <laughs> I don't want to hear that crap, Indian. I'm an American. Why don't you go back where you came from? <laughs> so I camped in his living room. <laughs> in Washington, D.C. <laughs> Did a show for members of the American Indian Republican Party. Three of the nicest gentlemen I ever met in my life. <laughs> and we're here with three of the nicest gentlemen you'll ever meet, too, on a certain issue. Ba mainly the whole issue of the difference in the way our government treats uh, Aboriginals and the rest of us. Wayne? Welcome to the show. Yep. You're from Grand Bend, and you're, as I understand, owner-operator of a retail fish store under Blue Whale Enterprises operating as Forbes Fresh Fish in Grand That's Bend. Right. Is that right? Now, I just wanted to start with this letter that you got from Ontario's Ombudsman, which was written to you, 
signed by investigator Hema Nagar and dated October 2nd, 2009. I thought that it really summarized your situation well, so if I just read that first, then you pick up from there, okay? Sure. And uh, this is in her letter to you, and she, she writes, quote, You believe that if the ministry is conducting fish processing inspections in the interest of public health, then it should inspect all fish processors without exception. You explain that although your business has been inspected annually, you refused an inspection in October 2008 alleging discrimination because First Nations fish processors were not being similarly inspected. We contacted the ministry to obtain information about its fish inspection processes. The ministry stated that while it attempts to inspect all fish processing facilities in Ontario, its approach to certain groups might differ. The ministry said when scheduling inspections with First Nations Aboriginal processors, it generally requests permission from the chief to enter the reserve. The ministry advised that this is good business practice, citing its guide entitled Ontario's New Approach to Aboriginal Affairs, which states, and this is the big line here, quote, Ontario recognizes that First Nations have existing governments and is committed to dealing with First Nations governments in a cooperative and respectful manner that is consistent with their status as governments, end quote. Can you believe that? That's actually in writing. And now I know from what you gentlemen have done, you would disagree with this, but let's hear from... Now, Wayne, as a consequence of your little protest against discrimination, which was a one-time act on your part, what happened to you? Well, over after uh, basically 29 years of uh, discrimination on my fishery versus the natives' uh, fishery, I... Because uh, you're in competition with them, obviously. Yes. yes. And selling to the public. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got fed up after years of it, especially in the last six or seven years, where they hired private inve- inspectors uh, under the guy... Uh, through, hooked up through uh, OMAFRA, which is part of the agriculture Ontario... Uh, they come around to inspect four times a year. Mm-hmm. And I find out after uh, the second year, the main reason they're coming to inspect me is because of I'm smoking fish. And so after talking to the inspector every time, four times a year, and, and finding out that uh, why they're really there, uh, the, the big processors, the commercial process smokers, are the ones that causing the problems. Uh, they're not smoking the fish long enough to kill bacteria, so therefore it's not good enough for public consumption. And so they started coming along, picking on the little guys, just like they have with the little laboratories and slaughterhouses, uh, trying to put all the small people out of business, maybe for to make their job easier, I don't know. But uh, really how it seems to you, isn't it? Yeah. So on October the 28th, I finally lost it. Uh, three of them there, an inspector, two MNR guys, flak jackets and guns, and, and I'm just operating a fish store. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to buy some smoked fish. And I said at the time, as I had for several years, are you getting fish or inspecting fish from my competition? And the answer every time was no. No explanation, no reason, just no. So I'm I'm a type of guy that sits back and sits back, and when I let go, I let go. 
And so I let go that day. And I gave them the two favorite words that they don't like to hear. <laughs> and uh, so they left, all three of them. All mad, pedal to the metal, rubber right. flying, gravel. And I, okay, I guess I hit the spot. So they show up a month later with two charges of failing to let them come and inspect. Mm-hmm. Well, the first one was beknownst to me, which they said it was a month earlier. Was nothing was said. Now I'm now I'm facing two charges, so I'm forced. I gotta get a lawyer. So this went on for two years. From the time they left me on October the twenty eighth on the eight. From the time you refused, yeah. They never came back to my premises one time in two years. Never even because you intimidated them. To in- <laughs> what about the public's health? Maybe you learned. I'm something. still selling fish, so I learned. One guy can do a lot of stuff if he wants to have the guts to stand up and, and be counted. And I'm thinking, I guess this is what we're going to have to do. The, the so-called uh, people that aren't treated the same under the law. We need to stand up and say enough is enough. Now, what happened to you, of course, was you, you had no, no bad incidents as far as your sale of fish in all those years. Isn't that correct? There's never been one health violation. And, and what I found interesting is you did go to court. The judge did not suspend a sentence on you for this, for this one violation and direct you to comply with future inspection conditions, which I saw was a clear option on your probation order there that you got. But instead, he chose to add two fines. To you and, yep. and you got one fine for eleven hundred and thirty dollars and a second fine for two thousand five hundred and five both for the same offense which reads fish inspection ontario according to the documentation you supplied and i thought that was odd because it didn't say for refusal to allow fish inspection is it for the for the offense of fish inspection <laughs> and i thought that was a little bit funny and so total cost was 3635 Now, you've paid that, right, already? Not yet. Oh, you haven't paid it yet. I had 90 days to pay. And you're going to... And it has to be paid by the 16th of December. And you're... before I can even think of launching an appeal, mm-hmm. I have to pay these fines. Of course. And are you, are you going to appeal? Uh, as far as I know, that's my plan. <coughs> uh, I, you know, now... it's going to cost some more money, and but... Uh, I, I think somebody has to do something. There's blatant discrimination here. Uh, there's violation of my civil rights now, under the charter. Now, you other, now you gentlemen, you heard, you've heard similar situations about things going on in other reservations. Isn't that true? Well, in, in Caledonia area with Six Nations, I mean, uh, the OPP have two sets of laws all the time. I mean, if we walk down the road carrying a Canadian flag, uh, both Mark and I have gone to jail for that. But if you actually, if you're a native person, and climb on the roof of somebody's house and stick it on their roof, the OPP will stand by and just watch. Can you explain that, how you got arrested for raising the Canadian flag at Caledonia? Yeah, I'm looking well, at this picture of you here in, in the National <clears throat> Post on uh, November 17th. You're leading that crowd of people there. Is that when you got arrested? Was that No, that was, that's from was October that? well, that's uh, 15, from before. Okay. 2006. What happened was after that particular rally, which uh, we had about 2,000 people out and it was completely peaceful, uh, the natives started going through the, the town and putting up uh, warrior flags all over the place, as, as, as I guess as a backlash to that, mm. 
trying and when they put up a flag they they make it clear that uh, you're no longer in, on Canadian soil that you're now on Six Nations territory so when they stuck uh, flags up and down the highway and started putting them in other areas as well they went up put them in Guelph and Hamilton some other places uh, the residents decided that they were going to go and put some Canadian flags up on hydropoles right and uh, the first time they did that was December the 2nd 2006 it wasn't part of my idea uh, I just showed up to take some photos and all of a sudden the OPP arrested a gentleman uh, claimed that the uh, he was to happened to be standing in a church parking lot at the time they claimed that the church phoned them and asked them to charge him with trespassing of course it never happened and uh, so he spends a couple hours in jail and really it was trying to intimidate them to make sure they don't put up Canadian flags so I made a decision if someone could go to jail for trying to put up a flag I'm gonna hold rallies so two weeks later on December the 16th of 2006 I had the first rally just simply to walk down the road and put a Canadian flag up on a hydropole and uh, the OPP brought in uh, several hundred officers they lined the uh, well, you're highway <laughs> and uh, and so Jeez. I end up going to jail that day. Mark went to jail that day. On what charge? Uh, they would say to prevent a breach of the peace. They actually uh, told the Human Rights Commission, believe it or not, that they're in writing. I, I'm still stunned to this day. The Human day. Rights Commission got involved in oh, this? Oh, we, well, we, we, we have outstanding complaints. Okay. And they actually told the Human Rights Commission that the reason they stopped us from putting up flags was to protect us from an extreme element who might want to harm us, should we do so. So they put us in jail to prevent uh, the natives from uh, beating us up. Much like they protected that uh, United States Border Patrol yes. officer. Yeah, right. That's now, right. since when do you put the victim in jail instead of the person committing the crime? I mean, we should just start arresting women for so they don't get raped walking so, down the street or arrest black people who want to walk through a white neighborhood. You know, right. and so the, uh, it's outrageous. The commonality between Wayne's story <clears throat> and, and the story between you guys is the unfair, unequal racial profiling, racial policing that we have in this, uh, at least this province and not this country. Well, the entire country is this way because we, we've actually had a meeting with the RCMP detachment in Stony Creek, which, which is part of Hamilton area. And we've asked them, why are you not enforcing the uh, laws regarding illegal cigarettes? And their answer to us, uh, directly to us, was we are not going to go in and shut down a smoke shop uh, as long as there's an occupation on Douglas Creek Estates, which is in Caledonia. So it appears so, to me then the focus of our anger as Canadian citizens should not necessarily be just the thugs from the reserve. It should be the people in charge of the police. Oh, absolutely. It's completely race-based policing, both RCMP and LPP. And who was the head of the police at the time of the uh, Caledonia province and you were arrested for raising a Canadian flag? That was Julian Fantino, who's Julian now Fantino. the uh, MP, uh, Conservative MP for Vaughan. And former police chief of the City of London. Yes. Former police chief. As well. Listen, we're at the bottom of the hour. We've got to take a break now. When we come back, we're going to carry on with this part of the uh, whole issue exactly. Why are we all being treated differently under the law and what can we do about it or are we helpless as the title of the book suggests we will be back right after this okay i don't think anybody can hear us now i've got to get on that reservation get inside and find out what's going on have you learned anything new 43 the red feathers are arming to fight they've summoned the leaders of other tribes they're concealing a powerful weapon in their main tent i've got to get inside that tent take some pictures with my micro camera and get out. Those fellows are armed. How are you going to get through their lines in broad daylight? Well, I'm not sure, 43. I better check my equipment. 
beach. $24 in cash. You'd think they would have wised up by now. Cloud, I have something to tell you. I'm sure if you listen to what I have to say, you'll change your mind about pressing that button. Speak quickly. Now listen, Red Cloud, we've always had great respect for the noble Red Man. Let's think of the past. Remember when you roamed these great plains with your buffalo, and then came our settlers, and then our soldiers. <laughs> uh, maybe we better forget about the past. The present. That's what counts, the present. Let's look at the present. Look what we've given you in the present. These nice, tiny little reservations. Uh, Let's talk about the future, Red Cloud. Now, if we take the promises of the past and join them with the policies of the present, then there's only one thing left to say. Let her rip, Red Cloud. <laughs> and welcome back to Just Right on CHW 94.9 FM. And Bob and I are joined in the studio today with Mark Vandermoss, Greg, uh, sorry, Gary McHale, and Wayne Forbes, who all are sharing their experiences of unequal justice in Canada. And Wayne, just before the break, you were noticing something you wanted to bring in here to the conversation. Yeah, I have uh, saw one thing here today. Uh, the natives seem to be like a government unto themselves. And I'm thinking, there's the reason why the police haven't acted to protect the innocent of this country. The natives are being treated almost like they have diplomatic immunity because they're a country unto themselves. And I'm just wondering if maybe something's not hidden somewhere well, I, I don't know how that they you, have this. I don't know how hidden it is when in the letter of, to the ombudsman, of the ombudsman to you, they literally said this. That's how they treat them. No, I'm not talking about uh -huh. them be, being treated as a government of themselves. I'm, I'm talking about this diplomatic immunity. It's like akin to diplomatic immunity where somebody from a foreign country can come uh -huh. here and commit murder it's an and get away with it. Well, it sounds like, to me, people in our own country have that same diplomatic immunity, even though we haven't been told that. Well, it sounds like a good parallel. What That's do you think of that, about that, Gary, and, and Mr. Fantino's responsibility to uphold the law equally for all? Well, in Caledonia, the, the natives actually come out and actually say that. They say they are not subject to any uh, laws. They say they're not subject to the court system. They believe they actually do have the right to uh, commit violent acts and not face any charges. And by and large, the McGinty government and the OPP under uh, Mr. Fantino uh, followed that kind of a policy. They would not enforce the laws, even though their officers would see violent acts take place. I'll give you one particular example. A gentleman named Dave Brown was driving home one night. Uh, the natives had their barricade up. He was supposed to show his passport to make it through the barricade to go home. Uh, it was late at night. He'd come home from a baseball game, a little bit frustrated. He didn't bother stopping. So he drove into his uh, driveway. Well, they, he gets swarmed on his property. He gets swarmed, forced out of his car, put into a native car, and they drive him down to the OPP checkpoint who watched everything happen. And who do you think goes to jail? Do you think it's a native person who just kidnapped this person from his own property? Or do you think it's this non-native person went to jail because that's the way you appease everybody. They're so afraid that uh, they're going to get the Native people upset that they will actually put anybody else in jail 
other than the person who's actually violating the law. So it's not necessarily a consideration of natives of having their own government and their own jurisdiction. It's simply the cowardice of the police, fear of reprisals from the natives, fear of exploding a situation, fear of another Dudley George situation. It's cowardice, isn't it? Absolutely. And uh, by the way, I would actually put most of the blame, believe it or not, on the media. Because if the OPP did actually, (laughs) if the OPP did actually arrest the native, that would be headlines throughout this nation. And the OPP would be hammered by the media. How dare you arrest a native person that's what would actually honestly happen uh they won't they won't put uh, the photo like you look at christie's uh, cover of her book which is a nice uh photo of a burning bridge uh we we supplied that to the media back in 2006 they've refused to print it she put it on the cover because that's what sells but the media will not publish most of the violence that took place in no Caledonia. i understand that that fire chief involved uh, uh were responsible for trying to put out that fire, kept his men from doing so because he said that he was um, afraid that the OPP would not protect his firefighters when if they tried to put out that fire. So again, it's the fear of the OPP to help all the law. Well, it actually goes... Is, is it fear or is it policy? You mentioned the word policy <clears throat> before, like they're acting on a policy. Would they not have to receive orders from somewhere to not... Respond well, Mr. Fantino claims that he's the only one giving orders, but I did. Uh, we do have emails where he was emailing directly to uh, three members in, in McGinty's uh, government, uh, he, the deputy premier of the province, McGinty's chief of staff, and McGinty's press secretary were all in his email. Um, back to the fire chief, I had Mayor Trainer on the stand, and she testified under oath that when they, the fire department did show up to the burning bridge to put, a, to put the fire out, the natives pulled guns on the fire department. What do you think the OPP did that were standing right there? Arrested the fire department? No, they, they, it was worse. I wouldn't be surprised. They actually got in their car and drove away. They left the fire department behind with the natives with guns. And we wonder why we were and in so these And so the fire chief goes to the mayor and say, will you support me if I don't send my crews out to some of these fires? And she said, of course I will. Right. So when you get all this violence, what we've done, uh, other than the public protests, is we discovered that under the British system, private citizens can lay a criminal charge. It hasn't been used very often, um, but we, we started doing this, and we've been very, very successful. At first, the courts didn't like it. Uh, the Crown worked very, very hard. It took us years to get the first uh, set of charges laid. But I've now been successful. I got Commissioner Fantino charged with a criminal offense. A Superior Court judge ordered him to be charged with uh, attempting to influence municipal officials. Now, what was that process called? Uh, Well, the first thing is you go before a justice of peace. But most justice of peace won't lay a charge against a commissioner or against a police officer. So they'll say, no, I'm not signing it. So then what you have to do, you have to do something called a mandamus, which goes to the Superior Court. And basically you're asking, it's an ancient thing, it's asking, it's making a request to the king saying, I want you to order your subjects to uphold the law or to stop doing something that's illegal. So we would go before the Superior Court and ask the judge, I want you to order the Justice of Peace to sign that document. And so we won every single time. Uh, the, the government kept telling, uh, sometimes I was facing three government lawyers, they'd tell the judge, you have no authority to hear the case. And we've been now successful four times. I've gotten Commissioner Fantino charged. I've got the new commissioner, Chris Lewis. <laughs> 
he was charged with obstructing justice because he in sent out case. he sent out an email to his officers telling them uh, basically he said there's virtually no evidence to charge Gary McHale, but we have video evidence that Gary McHale was assaulted by Clyde Palace. Then he orders his officer, but you will arrest Gary McHale at the same time you arrest Clyde Palace to avoid the conflict that's going to happen. So they, don't, they didn't want to discriminate. Well, they wanted... <laughs> so they arrest the victim and the... <laughs> that's exactly right. And so we, uh, I went to court and said, by him ordering his officers to arrest me, regardless of the evidence, uh, that was obstructing justice. Uh, again, the, the JP wouldn't sign the charge. The, the uh, Superior Court judge ordered the charge to go ahead. Now, I understand that later on the Crown actually dropped the charges against Mr. Fantino, correct? The Crown drops every single one of the charges we've, we've laid so far. Mm. Uh, the Crown uh, is in cahoots uh, with the police to make sure that uh, uh, the OPP and natives are not prosecuted. Uh, for example, uh, Clyde Palace uh, pulled the hydro tower across the road in Caledonia. It was there for six hours. And uh, at the same time, they, ca they caught on a clip, so the, the road's blocked. So I say to a resident, uh, well, maybe you should move your cr truck across the road. That took about 18 seconds in a 90-minute in a uh, rally. And so they charged me with counseling mischief not committed because he never did move his truck out across the road. Okay? Clyde Palace... They dropped the charge almost right away. Now, Clyde Paulus, he's not the chief of the Caledonia. No, no, he's just one of the radicals. He's who, just one of those radicals out there. And he's on the McGinty government's payroll. Most of the most of the natives, this is what people do not understand, most of the natives who've committed most of the violence in Caledonia are actually on the Ontario government payroll. Uh, the what guy, are they getting paid for? Well, they come up, they're the negotiations. See, if you want to make money in Caledonia, what you do is you block the road, the government comes and says, okay, we need you to open up the road. You say, well, let's open up a negotiation table. And what happens is you make five, 600 bucks a day. The native who actually pulled the hydro tower across the road on December the 1st, 2007, got paid in that year alone, that one year, on the government's own books, $231,000. Oh, my God. So you you're to paid so to be criminals. You know, it's, you want to know something funny? That actually happened in that Get Smart episode that I that I just played the clips and they ended up with the chief being part of the government. And I said that's too ridiculous. I'm not going to play that. That's fantasy. Yeah. And that and then and here we are. It's it's the real thing. Now, Mr. Fantino uh, was was blasted by the community of of Caledonia, the um, the non-native community, for not taking their their uh, situation seriously, not meeting with them, not talking with them, and and yet I've seen pictures of Mr. Fantino chuckling it up with Mr. Paulus. Actually sharing jokes and laughing with Mr. Paulus, yet he cannot find the time, or could not, now that he's no longer the chief, could not find the time at, 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 during that critical moment to meet with the victims. The OPP, uh, the OPP leadership's utter lack of regard for non-native victims and non-native activists is shocking beyond the pale. You look, at, you look at the incident of December 1st, 2007. Gary sent to the hospital bleeding after being swarmed by Paulus. Um, I was first assaulted. They wouldn't even arrest the guy who assaulted me. Uh, Gary was assaulted three separate times, and they, they had to pull these hackers off him each time, and, and it was catch and release, until the point where he's actually swarmed by Clyde Paulus, jumping on his back and bringing him down to the ground. Um, 
And then you have this picture of, of Julian Fantino laughing it up with the guy who assaulted Gary. Then we discover he writes a letter of reference. And this just blows Christy Blatchford's mind. He actually wrote a letter of reference to the court on behalf of, of Clyde Paulus and blamed Gary McHale for the attacks on him. It was, it was shocking. Let me go even worse. Here's this guy. He actually testified. I was in the court when Gary was questioning Fantino for two and a half days. He's talking. He has no evidence. I, Gary's asking, why, why haven't you charged me with these crimes if I'm so terrible? I don't have any evidence. Gee, what about that? Now, he also testified he never meets with non-native activists. In October 2009, the mayor of Haldeman County asked Fantino to meet with what she called the most aggrieved victims in Caledonia. That would be Dave Brown, Dana Chatwater, and the people on Sixth Line. A family, one of the families we're very familiar with, is, and it's a family of a little girl who was 14 years old when we met her. She, she wrote this, and she did this school project called Road of Hope, and she talked about how she has to take medication and go to counseling because she's afraid in her own home. Her mother's com- tried to commit suicide. Her father's had heart attacks. Um, and that little girl stood up on October the 8th, 2007, not a single po- and spoke and read that in, in a town where people were afraid for their lives who had policing she had she lived on a street where the OPP actually made a deal to withdraw policing because the radicals didn't want them they lived in total fear i have a, a quote actually it's just, just disgusting before we go to the break I'll just... and then that, and then i just want to say that after that after you read that quote fantino refused to meet with the, with those people with this little girl yeah with with the family with I'll, with any of the victims i'll just read what some of what she wrote here is Quoting, you cannot call the police because they can't help you. It was like you're in a prison, gates everywhere, men with masks over their faces only to see their eyes, men holding bats, some even with guns. It was a living hell. And this is from a 14-year-old girl living right next door to that reserve, fearing for her life. And you know, we took her to Queen's Park in the media studio and she read that whole project that you have right in front of you. Not a single media outlet interviewed her. Shame. Not one. Not one. She spoke on the hill in Queen's Park. Or, or sorry, in our protest. The TV cameras got the picture of Clyde Paulus shaking Gary McHale's hand, who allowed him to speak. Okay, where he's talking about, oh, I, we just want peace, we don't believe in violence. But they the, they completely ignored this little girl. Now, now if that had been a native girl, don't you think the media might have been interested in a bunch of white thugs terrorizing her in her home? Now, some people may say, well, why don't they just move away, you know? But why they should cannot they? sell. Well, first Can't of all, why it. should they? Perfect point. But secondly, no one will ever buy their house. I Why would they? The people, the people in the national, one of the excerpts in the National Post, and they're talked about in, in Christie's book, Helpless, uh, the Rauchers. They, they talk, I think they sold their house for half of what it was worth just to get out of there. Yeah. And they're still, if you read the, you know, she says, we're, we're, we're damaged. We're, 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 we're injured yeah, that people. And that was a really sad story. I heard uh, Christie talk about it. She was actually on another local station talking about that, and we'll be dealing with that a little later. But before I ask you the big question of the day, which we'll, we'll take this quick final break for the show, and then we'll wrap her up after this. Don say, good to be here. Hello, Caucasians, white people, everybody else said hi. Lots, come out tonight. Let's give them a hand. You're brave. Yeah. <laughs> You look like salt on a piece of moose meat, huh? <laughs> my name's Don Burstick. I live here in Winnipeg. Yes. It's my home. Yes. Uh, it's really good to be here. Wow, good-looking woman in the house, man. You know, I just want to say that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm single. For the white ladies, I'm eligible. 
For the Ojibwe's, I'm snaggable. For the Crees, I'm shack upable. A couple of three girls, hey, look, he's not my cousin, look. Because Indian men, we don't know how to date, huh? Indian men don't know how to date. We stalk. <laughs> we stalk our prey. <laughs> Cross the bingo hall. <laughs> and welcome back. We're in studio with Mark Vandermoss, Gary McHale, and Wayne Forbes, all of who had some problems with the way they've been treated under the law vis-a-vis the Aboriginals in our local community. I guess my big question is, you know, when we look at the situation that exists on the reservations, uh, William Gardner, for example, in his Trouble with Canada, points out that uh, the social reality of Aboriginal life on on you know, on these reservations is horrific. Quote, he says, worse than many of the poorest nations on earth. For example, although Aboriginals constitute only 3.8% of the Canadian population, they commit 28% of all homicides in Canada and 39% of all cases of assault. That's, that's, a, that's remarkable. And he says the vast majority of these crimes are by Aboriginal men, really only 1.9% of Canadians. And that given the fact that they're hardly ever arrested, apparently. Apparently. And then the London Free Press reports, Christina Spencer, Sun Media, that's March 2009 study, they've discovered that, uh, no, the natives aren't like this because of genetics, which we were talking about on the show the other week, Robert, but totally because of uh, social conditions. And uh, they've studied everything from sudden death in... Death, uh, sudden infant death syndrome to suicide rates much higher among um, indigenous children in Canada, Australia, United States, and New Zealand. So these are the rich countries, and they're living in poverty. What's in it for them? Why do oh, they oh. Why do they want these reservations in the first place? It sounds insane well, on the face of, quick, of it. A couple of quick points. First of all, uh, National Post did a, did a very in-depth study, uh, or study, a report on on reserve conditions, and one of the thing, one of the examples they cited was Kosheshawan, which was evacuated because the water was contaminated. The water was contaminated, they found, because the native operators of the water system ignored a warning sign, and, and I think a, a fifty dollar part failed, and and it allowed the the reserve to be contaminated. Now, when we went out to, uh, we spoke at Mount Royal University at the the 2010 New Directions in Aboriginal Policy Forum. Uh, The keynote speaker was a guy by the name of Don Sandberg, and I can't remember his organization, which is a shame because they were the sponsors. And he's a Native fellow, and he spoke at length about reserve corruption. And I mean, he had my mouth hitting the floor. And... Uh, that has to play a role as well. Uh, I mean, and even Wes Elliott, who was brought in from Six Nations, paid for by the university, to specifically counter our positions on what was going on in Caledonia, he stood up after he was finished and he said 95% of what you say is true. The problem, uh, you know, I haven't studied all in depth, but it it certainly appears that we have to look at the possibility that the problem on reserves is, is a 
greatly due to uh, corruption and mismanagement and governance. And that would be his that would be his part too. I think the other thing we have to realize is we often talk about reserves as if they're all equal. There's a huge difference between a reserve that's in northern Ontario that has virtually no opportunity for uh, jobs mm -hmm. uh, than something like Six Nations where, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, people can get jobs in Stelco or uh, Nanticoke or they uh, get jobs uh, in Hamilton. So there's huge differences between one reserve and other reserves. And we often paint all reserves exactly the same, and it's not true. You, you can't paint all Canadian towns exactly the same either. But we often do that, and the problem is there's a report that was out just a couple of weeks ago how the number of native chiefs, uh, even if you have a band of 2,000 people, some of these native chiefs are making more money than the Prime Minister of Canada. And that's huge money. And when you start talking about native self-government, what you really are saying is you take a dozen chiefs and you provide them all the money for everybody because you're not giving the checks out to individual people anymore. The money goes to them. And so you have uh, native bands out west where the, when it comes election time, the chief is buying a, a fridge for everybody's home. And there's been uh, elections that have been uh, thrown out because of, of that kind of a practice. They've had to do the election over again. But when you funnel all the money into the hands of a, a few people, and the band council is the single greatest employer on the reserve, then what happens to the people on the reserve? They, they're beholden to the chief. Of course. Imagine if, if your paycheck came to you or your money that you get comes from the mayor of London. It sounds like a mafia organization. Well, I think some of them have gone that way. Some of them are, are certainly very corrupt. There are some that have been very, very successful. Um, uh, now, the native chief the, the, out in B.C. that's been very, very successful. They, they call this self-government in some way, which is strange since there's no self involved. The money comes from literally another society, if you want to put it that way, because the money comes from the outside into the reservation. If it was self-government, wouldn't they be taxing themselves? Well, it goes even further <laughs> than that. People don't realize, when you look at the balance sheet, let's say, of Six Nations, not only are they getting money from the federal government, they're getting money from provincial government, but if you want to put a windmill uh, anywhere in the province, you better make sure you give uh, Six Nations their cut. So they get the cut of that. They get the cut from casinos. They get When you actually go through and say, okay, is Ontario Hydro is giving them a cut. Because most of these corporations, let's face it, you got a hydro grid going down the, the highway, and the natives say to you, you either give us a cut or we're going to occupy your hydro grid. It's a lot easier for the corporation to sign a deal. It's extortion, actually. Absolutely extortion. Matter of fact, several Superior Court judges actually call it extortion. Uh, there was a Brantford uh, ruling just uh, a few weeks ago in Superior Court where the judge actually said this is extortion. In the three minutes we got left, what's the solution to all this? <laughs> I was just going to ask. <laughs> yeah, three well, minutes. Summarize it for us well, quickly. Well, the you biggest solution, I, I think, is that the media really has to start reporting the story. So the, get the facts out first. Get the facts out and first. And the money. Then, and then expose the politicians for their racist beliefs. Because really what the politician is doing is he's saying, we're going to treat people differently because I know if I, if I take a Native person who's holding a gun against a police chief, uh, a, a fire chief, the media is going to hammer me. We got to say to that politician, you must, if you believe in equality, you believe in equality. I thought we lived in a multicultural society where we tell everybody around the world, come to Canada because in Canada you're all equal. That's a lie. It hasn't been true for decades, and it's time for the politicians to come clean on that. Mark, would you agree? For, for, absolutely. Uh, I, I would go, what I would say is, uh, uh, first of all, we have to get to a stage. We had to get the stories of the victims on the table. It took us four years. Christy Blatcher is now 
helped us do that and, and affirmed that we were telling the truth about what was going on. She's vetted the evidence. The stories of the victims are on the table. We need to get the stories into the educational institutions. It has to get into the curriculum. We have to get to a point now where we can have a discussion about where are we going to go through here. If we really want to move towards real healing and reconciliation based on justice and truth rather than the lies and intimidation, then we have to, Six Nations has to apologize for what they did, the OPP has to apologize, and the Ontario government has to apologize. And right now, all three of those groups are, are pretending um, that the victims were at fault. And that has to change, and it has to change now. Wayne, what would you say? I'd like to take this back to the beginning when uh, the white man came here and did a terrible job of governing the country when the, as, as far as the natives were, uh, lives were... Uh, uh, involved involved here they, they tried to take away somebody's culture and make them somebody they can't be or won't be or don't want to be and the whole trouble we're in today has got to be laid at the foot at the doorstep of the Canadian government and even today they're still not doing what they should be doing for the people of Canada now with you gentlemen I know you, you've done a lot of research on this any websites you would direct anyone to well, we have we have several. First of all, there's Gary's. It's CaledoniaWakeUpCall.com. Mm -hmm. Mine is the CaledoniaVictimsProject.ca. Uh, I also run VoiceOfCanada.ca. That has over 300 articles. We also have um, uh, HelplessByBlatchford.ca that we're using to promote Helpless as a as a as a springboard for a discussion about rule of law issues. Um, and we have ConservativesAgainstFantino.ca um, to help spread the message that, uh, you know what, uh, the party's crossed a line and we're going to oppose what went on there. Conservatives should be for law and order and not embracing the, the commander of an illegal peacekeeping mission on Canadian soil, which is what uh, they were referring to it as Caledonia. So that, that's our plug. Well, I want to take thank this. You. Uh, thank you for coming here. Just certainly, I hope you can make it back maybe sometime on a future show for a follow-up. Thank you so much for having us. This yep. issue certainly will not go away. Wayne, good luck with your, with your case as well, and we'll certainly follow up on that. But for now, we've got to go this week, and you know what to do, ladies and gentlemen. Join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, you know what to do. Be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here next week. We'll see you then. Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be <laughs> White people, they have the vowels in the alphabet You know, A, E, I, O, U And sometimes, why? Hey, us guys, our vowels are E, I, O, U, eh? <laughs> if you're Cree, E, I, O, U, eh? <laughs> why? <laughs>